0: Welcome back to the Neuroaffirming Parent Podcast. It's the show where we explore the world of neurodiversity-affirming practices and parenting and the wonderful lived experiences of people who exist within this world of neurodiversity. So please still think of me as just your online mom friend that will not judge you. I'm your host, the Neuroaffirming Parent, and in today's episode, we are going to talk with the wonderful Emily of at hearts to hearts SL. I follow her on Instagram and I most recently have been a guest on her wonderful podcast, NeuroTwist. It's a speech pathologist's journey through diversity and it, you can find it on Spotify and Apple podcasts. Now I will say Emily, I am dyslexic. So when I see M a CCC SLP, my brain is like what is that so please welcome to the show and tell me how do you deal with all these letters
1: oh my gosh um yeah it it is very confusing especially when like you're first finishing school and you have to write your fancy new signature for the first time uh oh, wow. yeah <laughs> yeah so my new instagram handle is heart to heart sl so all spelled out heart to heart sl Um, And that's the name of my uh, business that I'm launching. Uh, So MA refers to Masters of Arts. I have a Master's in um, Communication Sciences and Disorders, which is one of the uh, names that they give the degree for speech pathology. I think some programs call it like a Master's in Speech-Language Pathology. My program called it Communication Sciences and Disorders. Um, The CCC is, uh, I actually cannot, a certificate of clinical competence, I think. Um, and so we love it. (laughs) Yeah. So that is, uh, that's the part of the title that says that, uh, I am certified by our board professional board, um, as a clinician and then, uh, SLP is speech language pathologist. So I am a certified speech language pathologist. I'm based in the state of Texas. Um, and I currently full-time work as an early intervention SLP, which means I work with, uh, the birth to three population, um, and supporting families and in supporting their kids in, in their language development and feeding. (laughs) I do, I do some feeding as well. So, Um, yeah, that's the letters. That's the, that's the job.
0: (laughs) Yay. Thank you. And another reason why I definitely am excited to talk with you and I'm glad I invited you on is because you are actively talking about your experience of witnessing certain practices that aren't exactly affirming and advocating for and using neurodiversity affirming practices. But also, can you Cause I know like I identify in a different way and everybody else identifies in a different way, but what's your preferred way to identify within the realm of neurodiversity?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So I am autistic. I, uh, was, I received my formal autism diagnosis, uh, at the age of 24. Yeah. 24. So as a baby. Uh, Well, I'm, I'm 26 now. So it really, it, it wasn't a super long time ago, but, uh, you know, figuring out what time of year it happened compared to when my birthday was. So I was 24 about to be 25. Oh, oh, when's your birthday? Uh, June 30th. Oh, summer baby. <laughs> so, yes. So, so I got, I received my autism diagnosis, um, right. As I was finishing my first year as a speech pathologist after finishing graduate school. So uh, in speech pathology, we have to have like the first nine months or so with some level of supervision. Um, and so right as I was about to submit my paperwork to get my full license, I went through the autism diagnosis process, uh, which totally blindsided me <laughs> Oh, as, yeah. as a newer clinician um but turned out in a good way but yes yeah, so I I um I am autistic I use identity affirming language I call myself an autistic person um and that that's that's pretty much the deal I'm autistic neurodivergent uh, either of those things are fine with me <laughs>
0: Yeah. And honestly, I want to say thank you so much because I I feel like it's easy if you got that diagnosis and you could have like, you know, abandoned that career altogether and be like, listen, this is not for me. Let me do something else. But I want to empower neurodivergent people, especially late diagnosed neurodivergent people to see the value of their lived experience, the value of their perspective and how much we need more neurodivergent adults and that experience in every single one of these fields, whether it be, you know, the social justice world, the medical (laughs) model, education model, parenting. I, you know, I don't care how we do it, but we need to like break through this wall.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It was, you know, getting that diagnosis at the time that I did, there was a bunch of stuff kind of, yeah. At the time that I got my diagnosis, there was a bunch of stuff kind of coming together all at once. And I had so many thoughts about it. Uh, my first thought was there is absolutely no way I'm going to tell a single person that I got an autism diagnosis at the time. I was still definitely in the like medical
0: deficit based mindset. Um, and I certainly well, didn't my think- question to you would be like, when you were given this diagnosis, how was it framed? Was it like, this is going to help you personally, or was it kind of like, this is going to help you? Because I know like when I, I haven't really had like a, a official breakdown, but I've reached points in workplaces where I'm like, I can't do this. Like I'm not functioning, I need help. And you know, you have to go through the FMLA paperwork and like you get work excuses. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But I feel like some workplaces are like, hey, you need to get a diagnosis before we can give you any valid accommodations or so what was your at that point? What was your mind frame of like, how could you use this diagnosis?
1: Yeah, I think that 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 question is such a such a good one, because uh, I I will say just at the top, like before we go into any of the various things that we're going to touch on that. Um, I, you know, I'm white. I am, you know, solidly like middle-class. Um, I am very high masking, I would say in a lot of situations, especially at work, I would say is, you know, do a lot of masking at work. Um, I am not the best representation for autism at all I I do not consider myself to be a representative of autism in any way um I I am only a representative of myself and I always am trying to you know keep that in my mind when I talk about these experiences that like I not only did I have like the privilege of being able to get a formal diagnosis and didn't you know lose all my savings um the, the fact that, you know, getting a, having the option of like, I can either get a diagnosis or not get a diagnosis and kind of have the same outcome either way is also, I think a privilege of like presenting the way that I do. So I want to get that clear. You know, I always, I always want to get that really clear. Um, I want,
0: I want to help you frame that because I think it's hard because i'm i'm a person of color and mm-hmm. I, I see a lot of pr- people of color struggling because you're not alone there is a lot of late diagnosis going on there's a lot of self-diagnosis yeah. going on and yeah th- unfortunately social media is favored to what the rich white community and yeah. it's not just in america it's international for and sure i would say that you doing this work and being It's humility. You are embracing and you're taking accountability and you're not, you know, be like, oh, I have privilege, thanks. You're just like, you're acknowledging that privilege (laughs) and you use your platform, I've seen you to amplify other accounts and you are the perfect person to help implement diversity. So you acknowledging that, I mean, I wish organizations could understand. And like, we've talked about this. It's like, obviously, you know, your poster child for what you think autism is that has to go out the window we have to expand our brain and understand not just the hereditary component but the wide range of not just humans not just skin color not just brains and and the facts are no you can't just because people are getting late diagnosed doesn't mean that it happened to you later in life it didn't Mm -hmm. you know and that's why i love Asking you these questions and you having the comfort and the ability to articulate your experience as an adult, because you have the autonomy now and the knowledge now, but I think we need to highlight that this has always been your experience. You just have the words now to yeah, about
1: it. Yeah. So, and that was something I was going to touch on too, that when the diagnosis came about for me, it was after i accepted it and and i will I'll get into this a little bit more in a moment because i think it's in, an important you know context i feel like the the process of like how it came about for me but uh i i had kind of a a weird type of imposter syndrome i guess after getting the diagnosis and wondering like is this something that i should even talk about openly and even attempt to incorporate as a clinician because I don't have the same experiences as the kids that I work with necessarily. And I would never want to, you know, I I don't want to seem, I guess, like a liar, you know? So I don't personally, for example, talk a whole lot about I try to platform other people to talk about ABA is what I'll say, because I, I didn't go through any therapy related to being autistic as a child. I did go through therapy later on in my adolescence, but it had nothing to do with being autistic. Um,
0: Can I empower you to talk? I don't think you have to talk about ABA, but I think (laughs) you do have the experience, especially going through education where you because the, the root of ABA is behaviorism and right the root before that is materialism and physicalism which is sadly ingrained into a lot of the systems that we live in it and for sure is yeah I think you can say like hey I don't feel comfortable talking about ABA but this is what I've witnessed of how you know, I don't use behaviorist practices, or yeah, this didn't work for me. I and know I that a will. Lot of people will say it worked for them.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I will say it too. I mean, like to that point, it is really, really ingrained in the educational system. And I do remember, um, what I now know to be behaviorism being incorporated into my classes as like a young child, and oh, because so
0: tell me, what? What do you remember?
1: Okay, here's like the biggest one that I've been talking about lately that I remember a whole lot is the the clip chart. Oh like yes, the,
0: Let's talk. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Go, so,
1: go. and <laughs> for me, for me, I I to even now, I'm like a big rule follower. And so, I uh i that's just something that i always prioritized as a kid was you know i'm a people pleaser and i'm a rule follower like if you tell me what i am supposed to do i will do it yes. and so the just the mere thought of moving down from green on the clip chart was like paralyzing to me as a student Were you and i you moved down from green i was and those memories and it only happened maybe like two times.
0: Do you have an example? Like, do you remember like (laughs) one that like seared into your brain? Yes.
1: Yes. Because the only times I was ever moved down were due to other people. And then I have my autistic justice sensitivity, um, that like that made it stick in my brain a lot. So there was one time that I was in class with my, I don't know, I was sitting with, with some friends, I guess. Um, and we were doing like a craft i think we were doing like a valentine's day craft and this i, I re, telling this story like i have literally such a specific detailed memory of this happening um one of the stickers that we had on our craft was like a swan that had its two heads going together to make like a love heart you know yeah. um and <laughs> my friend sitting next to me was like you know oh my gosh look at these swans like they're, they're making a heart with their heads. Like, do you think we can do that? Or something like that. The point of the story is, is that she like made me turn to face her so that we could like put our heads together. Like we were trying to be swans making a heart Mm. and I'm trying to remember what the exact rule was that was broken in that moment. And I don't know. The only thing I can guess is that either, we were talking when we weren't supposed to, which thinking back is a little confusing because we were doing like a craft with, you know, the whole class was, you know, doing art. And that definitely seems like talking would have been fine at that moment. Um, or we were turning in our desks. And as we know, like the, yeah the good listening kind of sitting in your desk model is like sitting forward in the desk. So that's, I remember getting yelled at by the teacher and my clip got moved out. And all I could think of in that moment was like, I didn't even want to do that. Like I I was not involved in you were trying decision to decision at friend. all. <laughs> I, I mean, you no, know, I, I did. I, there was never a point that I wanted to do it. I was telling her the whole time, like, no, 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 I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And, and all she uh, heard
0: was, I don't want to get in trouble.
1: I guess, I don't know. But anyway, that was like, one of the only times that I ever got moved down on the clip chart. And it was horrifying for me. Um, Another time I got lunch detention and this was in middle school. I got lunch detention for chewing gum in gym class. Now, important context, I do not chew gum. I think that gum is. Sorry to if you chew gum or if anyone listening chews gum. I think it's disgusting. I have, like I said before, really severe sound sensitivity. Um, I still identify with having a condition called misophonia, which is just like the most extreme type of sound sensitivity, and a lot of it is related to mouth noises. And so gum is one of those things I just cannot stand, and so I don't chew it. And I. Pretty much, if I see someone chewing gum, can't even like red look flag, at them. red flag. Red flag. <laughs> like I cannot, I can't, I cannot make eye contact basically with a person who is chewing gum unless, unless I'm at work, you know, unless I'm like highly masking and at work. But otherwise, I I just don't do it, and I never have. Um, and so I knew that it wasn't me, and I remember sitting at the lunch detention table. And the monitor comes over and was like, Emily, what are you doing here? Like, what, what is, cause I'd never been to lunch detention. Everybody knew me as like a very good kid. And I was, I was crying. I was like, I don't know. They said I was chewing gum, but there's no way that that was me. I don't chew gum. And uh, she sent me back to my, you know, lunch table. Um, because she knew that it couldn't have been me. It turned out it was a different student who also had long blonde curly hair and they just wrote down the wrong name. Um, they just mixed us up in their head. And so, yeah, those were like the two times that I ever got. And did anybody got...
0: like come to you and like apologize?
1: I I actually think my gym teacher did apologize because, uh, I mean, it was, uh, and not not to you know sound dramatic but like it was traumatic for me because I again like people pleaser rule follower and the behaviorism of I, I I don't think it's controversial to say that behaviorism is traumatizing for pretty much everyone involved in it and
0: well and I'd argue there's a lot of people that have seen the different side of behaviorism that say it's a part of an institutionalized system where the teacher becomes the reinforcer for that behaviorism. Yeah. And so, and I would even say like, yeah, like that's the problem is like, when you're telling me the story, I'm thinking of the perspective of the teacher too, because I know what it is. I know like the teacher probably saw something out of the corner of their eye, their brain, filled that gap of what they didn't see. They have that insecurity of, oh no, I was supposed to be witnessing this. I was busy doing something else. I'm going to get in trouble. So this kid needs to get in trouble before I do.
1: Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a system that doesn't serve anybody really. And even like telling those stories that probably would seem small to a lot of people, it's like making my heart race, like thinking about it because it still just sticks so strongly in my mind. And uh
0: Well, yeah, I have yeah. a problem because a lot of people, you know, when I say I'm dyslexic, they assume like, well, I'm, I'm glad people are learning that, you know, my short-term memory is not great, but my long-term memory is really good. And with my gifted neurotype too, like it, like you're right. Like I smell the room. I picture the environment. I remember going back to the time and I have an episodic memory so it's not that it plays like a, a video, I can't like snapshot it, but it's like a moving gif almost of the what I remember. And yeah. it's funny because I'm so glad your generation is talking about clip charts and the trauma <laughs> because I remember when they started getting implemented in school and I thought, this is stupid, this is silly. Yeah. Like, Why do teachers need this? But I remember, I feel like it was an accommodation for the teacher. Because I remember the beginnings of it before they brought in these like fancy charts where like the teacher had to remember not just the curriculum, not just the work for the day, but they had to remember. And it's also because we had bigger class sizes. I remember I saw the change um, and it had to be like 2001, 2002 era um, because it went from like smaller classrooms to consolidated where there was like almost like 23 kids to a class 30 like pushing it and the teachers were overwhelmed and so this behaviorism was brought in as accommodation for them and I remember like I liked the fact that I could see my name and I could learn Mm. and it was a combination for me because then I didn't have to remember everybody's name I could just look at the clip chart and remember their name and also I did like the fact that if I saw somebody was on red I was going to be nicer to them And Mm. I don't think that was the original goal of it. Obviously, it was supposed to be like, oh, shame this person and tell them to do better. But for me, being neurodivergent, I was like, no, I'm going to show that person more empathy. I'm going to be kinder to that person. And I didn't understand how teachers didn't see it that way, because the teacher felt more entitled to single out that person. And when you go from like, what is it like most of the charts go from like green like a traffic light good yeah yellow yeah. was like you're in between you have a chance to by the end of the day to earn back that green card but red was like uh, uh-uh, red flag you're getting to call home you're getting a note home you're probably getting beat when you get home if you're not getting beat at home you're going to the principal's office to get beat there and it was just like this fear tactic of which is ironic because for me learning about explicit education yes kids need that explicit model to understand the consequences that come, but it shouldn't be compliance based. It should be uh, just like neurodiversity, more of a spectrum to understand. So it's interesting to me that we can't see behaviorism as an opportunity to learn about emotions, or why wouldn't you have like a thermometer? Why wouldn't you have kids give autonomy? And if they're not feeling okay that day, or if they need help, grab their name stick it on a thermometer and be like hey i'm not feeling good i need more help versus assuming that that kid is bad they have problems and that they need more punishment right because and i i honestly i'm glad a lot of parents are learning about etymology and the words and what they mean because discipline is based in education punishment is more punitive and compliance and i mean yeah we have to be honest like it's traumatic to think about the paddle in school or right all these things that you know a lot of our generation either experienced at the tail end or it was phased out and we kind of saw the vacuum that was created of what didn't work in between yeah and, so tell me how did it make you feel once you got your diagnosis of looking back in retrospect
1: yeah so my history I guess before that is I think I think the 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 story of a lot of neurodivergent or autistic uh women or afab people who uh receive a diagnosis later in life um I really began to struggle when I entered high school and that's not to say that I didn't struggle before that because I've always had some characteristics of like the major sound sensitivity and a lot of, uh, a big thing looking back was like my social relationships, like my friendships at the time i thought that i had friendships but looking back on it realized that like these were not friendships in the way that you know uh, my understanding of what friendship is now yeah um but when i entered high school like my adolescence i uh feel feel very lucky because i was able to ask to go to therapy because i started i i knew that things were not right in my brain um and it, it wasn't from an autism perspective at all i ended up getting a depression diagnosis like a chronic depression diagnosis i think even now after my like most recent psychology evaluation i still have a moderate chronic depression diagnosis Um, But I know at the time that I was in therapy preparing for my evaluation for autism, my therapist was like, I don't even know if you actually have depression. Like, it could just be a result of years of masking and the effects of that. (laughs) Right. So... So that was kind of like my, my history there was like, I was diagnosed with depression. I was diagnosed with anxiety, um, like a general like mood disorder. I was on medication for many years that in retrospect realized wasn't, uh, fit for my neurotype. Um, and I went, I went through phases with it. I, I went through phases of like being on medication, going to different types of therapies that I never felt like therapy was really helpful for me I just went because I didn't know what else to do and I was scared honestly I I was kind of scared for what I might do um or I a what I
0: controversial I've, question can I ask you
1: I'll let you know if I'm not comfortable answering it so
0: my question would be um how do you feel about what we know now about neurodiversity and yet people you know, say, hey, you know, go to your doctor, go to your therapist, but mm-hmm. they ignore the fact that it's possibly parallel play.
1: That I I feel like I need clarification on what you mean by that.
0: <laughs> so I, I, to clarify, I feel like we pathologize when children or like when a lot of ADHD people talk about body doubling helps them and they can be yeah. in the same room with somebody doing something else. And they're happy and they're regulated and they're together.
1: Yeah. And
0: I feel like we don't value the fact that therapy is useful in that manner when you're just having somebody listen to you.
1: Right. Yeah. I and and honestly, the the subject of like parallel player bodily body doubling is so interesting for me because I definitely feel like I still parallel play in my own, like, you know, the adult version of that, which I guess could also be called body doubling. I don't know what the real distinction between those two things are. Um, but I, I think that there, what, what I would say as like a general statement is that autism as a neurotype is pathologized and, My belief now, and I think the belief of a lot of other autistic advocates is that the diagnostic criteria that we have for autism right now is based off of an autistic person in distress, like an unwell autistic person, possibly an autistic- Well,
0: I would argue, let's, because I I think people say unwell and they say, you know, mental illness, but they don't understand Mm -hmm. that we're talking about an unsupported person.
1: It, yes yes i think that that's a perfect clarification um yes but and an autistic person who's not being supported possibly an autistic person in burnout um dysregulation yeah dysregulated like they we don't have a framework of understanding for what diagnostic criteria would look like for an autistic person who is not in distress um and Oh, uh, I would also say, again, this is something I think a lot of autistic advocates would agree with, that we also don't know what a non traumatized autistic person looks like. Like our the construction of our society as it is right now is not able to produce a non-traumatized autistic person well yeah because and i'll our- tell
0: you an example is that is like let's talk about movies that recommend that exist in our zeitgeist of mental illness like for girls i would say girl interrupted why is winona Ryder being told that she needs help because she's not functioning in the world so her parents are like we don't know what to do with you let's send you to a doctor that can figure out where do we go from here or even like rain man like why is he going to live with his brother because you've hit this wall and this plateau and society says we don't know what to do with you but we need to figure out what to do with you and I think people don't realize that it shouldn't be at that level it shouldn't get to that point there we need to stop being reactive and start realizing that we have the tools we have the information and we have the ability to be proactive yeah people in general society
1: And if I could speak to that from a professional standpoint, something that I notice, and I think I get, um, I think I get like special insight into this being an early intervention professional because I do work with families in their homes, Mm. um, which is a very vulnerable place to be. Um, I feel like a lot of families with autistic or neurodivergent children, they, come to us a lot of times not in every single situation but I it happens often enough that I feel like I can make a a broad statement where they already know how to accommodate for their child Mm. they already do supportive things and it's not until somebody comes in and pathologizes that that they start turning around and feeling like they don't know what to do It's, it's, it's not like, I, I, I have so many families where like, uh, I'll give like an easy concrete example, um, with an autistic child and they have a trampoline in their house, like a little trampoline. Um, and they're just like, I don't know, they just love jumping. They love jumping off the couch. So we just got them a trampoline, and now they they love jumping. They could spend all day in there.
0: And it's an accommodation,
1: right? (laughs) Right, and it's not until a professional comes in and says, like, you should be really concerned about the jumping. No, that they even think about that. that
0: And like a satire way, I like. I feel like um, parents need to understand. Like professionals are be like, listen, lady, you got that on sale at Walmart. What you really need to do is call your insurance and tell them they need to pay me to do that same thing, but I get paid more.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and honestly, honestly, I feel like if we were lucky, if we were in a good therapy world, that their professionals would say that. Now, I mean, take out the insurance part of it like I have all kinds of beef with, all with be that beefing
0: with insurance whole system
1: <laughs> but my experience in my part of the world collaborating with other professionals is they would sooner say stop the jumping don't even have the trampoline
0: okay so you bring okay. up a really good conversation but I want to ask you a question first and we'll come back because I I think it's so important for people to talk about compliance and hand over hand and because it's a universal concept in all therapy, but I want to pause and ask you in your childhood, do you have certain toys or accommodations that you remember or like certain activities that you did that now you kind of view with this understanding of neurodiversity as an accommodation? An example is a trampoline. Like, did you go to Chuck E. Cheese? Did you go?
1: Chuck, <laughs> Chuck <laughs> Chucky. Chucky. Chuck E. Cheese was banned in my childhood. I remember my mom uh, and she'll she's probably going to hear this and she's going to be nodding along that I think <laughs> we went there for like my first birthday and my mom was like, never again. She hated oh. it. Um, so I did go. It's not like I never went again, but like Chuck E. Cheese, no, that was not a thing. Um, I have to be honest though. Like I, I really feel like my childhood especially before going into school and kind of, I feel, I feel like almost acquiring a lot of anxiety from being in school. Um, I was raised in a community of people who were just like really just very accepting of anything, you know? So um, I was truly, I feel like raised by a village and feel very lucky for that um and Honestly, i'm
0: gonna say i think a lot of the millennial nostalgia we're seeing is because of that time frame and i'm not saying yeah. like, oh we saw peak society but I, <laughs> I agree because i feel like a lot of the programming had phonics had diversity like right me and my I- sister felt very supported And I feel like that's why I have a good memory of my public school upbringing, even though if it wasn't perfect, I had enough supports outside of school and in my home. Mm -hmm. And like you're saying, yeah, that's spot on. Like my mom, she was not raised in an affirming environment and she wasn't exactly the most perfect mom, but she knew she remembered what she did not like from her childhood. And she meant to keep that out of our childhood but then yeah. if we had an issue, she listened to us.
1: Yeah, for for my situation, you know, this is mostly. I mean, it, definitely like when I was in school as well. But before I like entered kindergarten, you know, mm. um, I didn't grow up in like a nuclear family, so to speak.
0: Same, um, I had a single mom. <laughs>
1: yeah, so. And so I had a lot of other adult influences on my life and the adults that I had in my life were all just a very, it's a very diverse group of people in pretty much every sense. And they, like, whatever I was doing, as long as I was, like, physically healthy, I guess, um, which is not to say anything about, like, families who have kids that are not physically healthy, um, so want to put that out there but pretty much as long as i was safe
0: um well, any- let's talk about this like i think we have a different upbringing idea of what healthy looks like and i think it reflects more of what we see today where yeah. if a child is happy or regulated or if they're okay in their own little world we don't make it a big deal yeah but also I, let's talk about support levels in that respect. Like that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be excluded from support. Right.
1: And I, I think the reason why I gave that caveat is just because I work with a lot of families who have medically complex children. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, being in perfect physical health is not like the, the ideal of with people still humanity,
0: depression and anxiety. I'll tell you. <laughs>
1: and <laughs> and also they and also they still experience like radical joy they still experience play like it it's it's fine you know so that's the reason why i give that caveat because like it it's it's uh not every family is going to experience like oh as long as they're healthy you know like it it's and that that is a valid human experience as well um, but, but I, my
0: question would be, like, did you have like a go to toy that you just couldn't yeah. get out of that you loved? well,
1: <laughs> um, it's funny. I was like just reflecting on my play the other day, so I wouldn't say i I'm thinking about it now, and I wouldn't say that I had like a toy necessarily, but my play was very autistic in the sense that, um I always wanted to have control over the play. So I would do like a lot of adults would look at me and see like, oh, she is doing pretend play with her Barbies. I was not doing pretend play with my Barbies. I was setting up scenarios, setting up scripts. And then sometimes doing like that classic autistic girl thing of like, I set up a scene, and then I take it down, you know? Um, but oftentimes it was like, if I'm playing with my sibling, I am telling them, this is what you're going to do. And then this is what I'm going to do. Um, one of my favorite uh, games to play when I was really little was a uh, movie theater with my stuffed animals. And I would it was basically just a fancy way to line up my toys um, where I would line up. This is what I would do. I would cut out little... Pieces of paper into tickets, put them in a bowl. Walk all of my stuffed animals to the bowl, pick up the ticket, sit them down on the couch, and then repeat, repeat, repeat with all my stuffed animals until they're all sitting on the couch. And then I would watch a movie with them. Um, And so that to me, to me, that's just like lining up my toys. But do
0: you still do that as a therapist? Because I feel like a lot of the speech therapy that's good like does that where like all you do is just add narration yeah yeah so my my therapy uh
1: so my my I do caregiver coaching as a therapy model so I don't uh, I I try to not do like one-on-one play with kids very much in my therapy because I'm trying to empower the caregivers to you know help influence progress and yes, development in their child yes. um but <laughs> I I don't remember who said this first but it really resonated with me but I really see myself when I am like playing as a play partner mm-hmm. rather than a play director now when oh, I was a kid play was
0: facilitator
1: play facilitator for sure Ooh. um I I think one of my favorite things about playing is um And I really, really try to pass this idea along to parents and keep it at the front of my mind because I'm definitely still, I'm a lot more like if I see a toy, I want to know the correct way to play with it. I want to like follow the directions, you know? So like, I I don't, I have, I'm not super creative in that way. So one of my favorite things about playing with kids is I love to get ideas from them. And I'm a lot more conscious of it now. Like when I was little, I probably would not have been on board with that. But now as an as an adult, uh, my that's part of one of my favorite things about doing therapy is like I might show them a new idea with a toy, but they have just as equal power in that uh, dynamic to also share an idea with me. And Can I just tell
0: you, like, my brain is literally building, like, the a world, like, a neurodiversity, like, camp, or a neurodiversity, like, something I know, right? Because <laughs> I agree. Like, I feel, it like, because my sister is ADHD and dyslexic, mm-hmm. and we're both gifted. But, mm-hmm. yeah, like, what you're talking about is, like, yeah, from the outside, it looked like, oh, these kids are playing. Like, no. Like, we were, like, we would use Polly Pockets to reenact Titanic. Like, we would. Right. <laughs> And my thing is like, people don't understand the power of collaboration and it doesn't leave out neurotypical kids. They serve a purpose too. They have their own specialization that's great for play. Mm -hmm. And that's why I probably fight so much for inclusive education is because, yeah, like if you think about like a summer camp, like you're gonna have the counselor that's great at creativity, the counselor that's Mm -hmm. great at movement, the counselor that's great at drama, the counselor that's great at rules and building the structure like, why don't we value, and I'm and I'm tired of people exploiting, like, potential neurodivergent employees, because I don't think that you, just because you're autistic, you should be maybe, like, pigeonholed into a certain job or specialization. I right. feel like you should have the freedom to make the career that you want, and that's yeah. why I'm so happy that with, like, your career, you're able to make a private practice, and Like this, you're not limited to like, there's nobody telling you like, oh, you can't coach parents. or You can't (laughs) do that. You know what I mean? Like that freedom, that autonomy is made for you.
1: Yeah. I'm actually like in the early intervention program in the state of Texas, we are technically required by law to be coaching, uh, to be using a coaching model in our therapy. Um, and I, you know, being a rule follower, take that very seriously, (laughs) I also really love caregiver coaching um, and it's the most evidence-based model that we have for the birth to three age group um, as far as therapy goes. Yes. So it's not just that I'm like a big rule follower. It's also that I really believe in it and it, I've just seen so much incredible results from it.
0: Well, can I comment um, because yeah. I feel like that's a realistic goal to shift from because where did we see that before? When behaviorism was deeply ingrained in animal training, we don't mm. do that anymore. With animals, we are way more affirming. And what do we understand from like lovely Caesar, the, the dog whisperer? Yeah, it's not the animal that's the problem. It's usually the owner or the person that controls that environment. Yeah. That it, I would not even say is the problem. They have things they can work on or in- right. improve. And I feel like when it comes to parents, a lot of people confuse the idea of, hey, if my kid has is showing traits, I'm not taking them to somebody to fix my kid. I'm asking you for realistic goals, realistic information, evidence-based information on what can I do as a parent to better support my child?
1: Right. And that's what I tell families too. I have kind of a spiel that I give to every single family that I start working with the first time I meet them. And part of the spiel is that I am not here to change anything fundamental about your child. I'm not here to fix your child because your child is not broken. Um, And my job as a therapist is not even really to like, quote unquote, get your child to talk. It is to help your child to show up as their most authentic self and, you know, build communication within that. That's my priority at all times. So um, for, for sure. And I think it goes back to that parents and caregivers know their children best. So many caregivers, again, already build in accommodations and things that they do at home and so I really try to be that person who is like all those things that you're doing, like all of that knowledge that you have on your child, like you can continue using that. Like you don't have to, I, I am not here to change anything really fundamental about your household dynamic either, because we're we're figuring out what works for you. And I think that unfortunately, um when The therapy like medical model kind of comes onto the scene it it really I I mean I don't know if there's really much more I can I can say besides like we pathologize every single thing that we see like unfortunately my job title is speech language pathologist yeah so of course like it implies that
0: question like what what kind of background did your education teach you for child development and kind of like the history of how your school understood speech development
1: um that's a good question so I mean my program gave us information about like what language development looks like in kids I don't really feel like I got a super holistic education on child development as a whole Mm. Which is unfortunate. But also, like, you know, I could have taken extra courses about child development. Um, and I but also should they've
0: been made required to help? Well,
1: I get I guess the only the only justification that I would have for that is that speech pathology covers the lifespan. Yeah. And so if we had a whole class that was just on child development. I don't it wouldn't have been applicable to like every single person in that program. However, like, yeah, I, I mean, I think that we need to have a better, more holistic understanding of child development as SLPs who work in pediatrics. I also think that, you know, uh disability studies is also something that should be required um for anybody who goes into a therapy field. And it is not. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't even know. That disability studies was a field until after I left school. I don't even think that the word disability was mentioned more than a handful of times in the entire time that I was in my master's program, which I think really uh de-emphasizes the fact that we as speech pathologists work with disabled people no matter the setting that we're in. And well, I don't, yes. I don't think that a big portion of SLPs really understand that. Like, I don't think they really internalize what it means to work with disabled people and what it means to actually value the disabled experience and all of the advocacy work that has been done to get us up to this point, even though we still have a lot of work to do in terms of inclusion and accommodations and and all of that. <laughs>
0: Um, yeah, we can expand on that because I shared recently, like I have a personal family experience of institutionalization and it's mm -hmm. because they're from New York and New York has a long history of not exactly being affirming and kind of being like the cornerstone for controversial therapies that Mm -hmm. advertised as like, Oh, this will fix your family member. And I shared a story about Like my mom went to a a hospital and its original foundation was, it was a hotel for nervousness. And Mm. so it was literally people in like the early 1800s that were experiencing anxiety, probably because of the economy, like people don't learn about like the 1819 panic and all these things. And you have immigrants coming from different countries. Like that's a traumatic move. Right. And so what do they say? Well, come to this hotel. We'll help you. They weren't telling people they were institutionalizing them and then transferring them to an asylum. And then essentially, you know, you hear about Britney Spears conservatorship. That's not new. That is something very old practice of let me lock this person up. Let me charge the family to take care of this person. And as long as the family pays, and if we take care of this, you know, patient and we make it look like we're taking care of them, it doesn't actually matter what goes on in between and mm-hmm. I know, like we've come a long way. We, you know, like the 1980 Act, like the ADA Act. We have to like celebrate that and champion that. But we still have a lot more to go. And I agree with you. Like people need to stop assuming that. Oh, like I'll never be disabled. Like you, yes, this is disabling. Yes, you lose certain skills, and society has to support us at any time if we lose that skill like car crashes are on the rise mm-hmm. or so our disability community is on the rise like COVID really impacted everybody and opened their eyes to realize that no you can't really go anywhere today without realizing that somebody has been impacted by a disability in right. one facet or another right
1: exactly I say all the time that uh, you know speaking to other SLPs like Not only are you as an SLP going to encounter disabled people, you as a human being are going to encounter disabled people. You as a human being are likely to become disabled in some way at some point. Like it is something that impacts people regardless of any other demographic demographic, right? That's the word (laughs) demographic. For some reason, it sounded weird coming out regardless of any other demographic category that you fall into. Like that is something that spans all of humanity. And
0: well, I I think the question is like, why did it become, and I, I, you might not know the answer, but this was like in my research, when it comes to literacy, why is literacy education speech language pathology, and even linguistics. Why is it so separate where in my mind, I can't separate them?
1: I don't I, I don't know if I can have an answer to that question. I I think that um if if I did have an answer to that question, it would be that we still have a really curative, perspective on pretty much anything that doesn't fit the mold of like what works best in our educational system
0: new question how do you feel about biden being the first openly (laughs) president with a stutter and oh cured and he still yeah day and like we even have in congress we have a lot of disabled people in congress and they get mocked and like i my heart breaks i'm like how these are these are humans why are you that should be off limits to me well
1: I I mean I agree with that actually so in my earlier career like finishing up graduate school um, stuttering was actually like my first passion and so I was definitely like very uh, it was very impactful to see Biden talk about you know having a stutter like being a person who stutters um and so it was really influential like at the time of the election for me because at that time I was doing my research on um by dialectalism and the impact that it has on stuttering and fluency so it was it was something that was definitely very very at the front of my mind at the time um but Yeah, there's just there's a lot of misconceptions I will say about stuttering and whether like what it says about your intellect.
0: Unfortunately, to the misinformation with neurodiversity and trauma, Uh, because it's so intertwined and it's so individual and it's so complex, you can't boil it down to a post. Or an infographic. Right. No, you can't. It's nuanced. Yeah. It's nuanced
1: in the way that like humanity is nuanced. Like I (laughs) and I and I try to use that analogy too. Um, like, of course, I as an autistic person am not the same as every other autistic person, just like an allistic person is not going to be the same as another allistic person. Just by nature of them both being holistic. Like, and that's what I think, what, what I think that results from is again, like medical model, curative approach that says, these are the characteristics that are broken about your brain that need to be fixed. And that is what makes you autistic rather than it being a state of existing. Um, and I think that, uh Dr. Barry Presant has done like so much incredible work with forwarding this idea that it is a state of existing rather than something that needs to be fixed. Um but yeah and I think so so my my point there is that that's what makes people have those misconceptions is holdovers from the medical curative view of autism. Yeah, Um, I
0: would, if I could share, I saw a quote the other day and I I forget who said it, but they said that generally in education, if you have a teacher that's focusing too much on behavior, it's usually possibly related to an insecurity of their own training. And -hmm. it's usually an indicator that they need more support. So my question to you would be, because we, we've kind of moved on, but I want to go back to, you were about to share about how you feel about compliance or hand over hand in your own field as a therapist and my question would be like how do you feel like for the people like i i feel bad if i exclude people that do have a deep connection to behaviorism because i feel like they need support and they need neurodiversity education but they don't yeah. see the value of it yet
1: yeah i mean i agree with that i think that um and i can't remember if it was when we were recording for mine or if it was earlier in our recording for this one but um i will say like from my own experience as a new clinician that because we're only taught like very narrow models of what therapy looks like and that often includes things like hand over hand and and behaviorism when we see those things not working, it is very destabilizing for therapists. Mm. And um, when we see, like, I'll, I'll bring it back to, you know, gestalt language processing as an example, like in school, most of us are only taught about language development from an analytic language processing perspective. Mm. And so when we try to use strategies that target development for alps and it doesn't work for glps and this is not something that's new like this is something that is historic in the field um it's it's destabilizing like we feel like we're spinning our wheels and it and it always goes back to you know turning the blame on the child. Yes. And what can we do to get this child to fit this mold that I have for my therapy? Because it can't possibly be that my therapy that I've been doing for decades has any flaws to it. It has to be this child. And so I'm trying to remember where I was going with that.
0: Well, I'd argue I, th- I and I made a post about this. I think the more people learn about gestalt language processing is important because I think it bridges the gap between the misinformation about whole language, because people yeah. assume that kids can learn to read from memorizing sight words. And right. I think like we need to compare uh, predictive text or leveled reading books to the same as a child remembering a script.
1: And, right and and i, and I would say too
0: for a short time but that doesn't equate to reading or other things that you expect them to know
1: yeah i mean and and i i definitely um can relate to those ideas as someone who like is a gestalt language processor and was hyperlexic as well um that yeah even looking at it from a professional standpoint like i i think you're completely right about those uh, those thoughts, you know, going in that direction. Um. Well,
0: question: Do you remember how you learned to read?
1: No, because I learned to read before I had permanent memory. Like I, I, I learned to read very, very young. But I but don't did believe you
0: have like. Do you remember any like books that you did, or what was like the first book you read?
1: No, I honestly no, because I was like reading books very young. So I don't remember when I started reading books. I do remember, like, I love Junie B. Jones. (laughs) I remember, I remember reading, like, that was probably the first thing that I remember reading was Junie B. Jones, but I know it wasn't the first thing that I read. And I do know that I was reading Junie B. Jones, like, long before I entered, you know, kindergarten.
0: Well, question, Um, do you ever struggle with comprehension?
1: That I can't, I can't really remember either. Um, Cause that's I, my
0: problem is like, I, I didn't know, I don't know if my kids are gestalt language processor or if they're hyperlexic, but I do know that like my daughter, once my daughter broke the code, like she's at a second reading level right now. Yeah. We still have to like, you know, work on the foundational building blocks. Like I'm not just being like, oh, well, you know, you're good to go from now on. Right. My husband, his mom claims that she taught him to read when he was one years old. And I'm like, I don't think that's true, (laughs) but he doesn't have a time where he wasn't reading. And I think a lot of people misinform with hyperlexia is that number one, that people know what it is. Right. Two, when they say that they're struggling with comprehension, I think it's the problem of does you Have you asked the child if they care about explaining what they understood from that text? <laughs> yeah,
1: right. I mean, I will say I remember a lot. So I don't remember ever struggling with comprehension necessarily, but I'm sure that see, this is why at some point I'm going to do a podcast episode just with my mom, because I, I yes. have so many things I want to ask her about that because I know that I was reading young and I don't think that it's logical that I would have been able to comprehend everything that I was reading at the age that I started reading um
0: but I'd argue your generation had a unique point where some people didn't have to struggle with comprehension because you had Harry Potter in the movies you had Aragorn in right. the movie you had Narnia yeah the that's movie. an
1: that's an interesting point I mean those were uh, I I can tell you actually that I did not read Harry Potter any of any pretty much any of those books except for Narnia. I did read but um... I can't remember
0: I can't recommend them to you because (laughs) I remember I was like it was like a new thing like my school got the first Harry Potter book in like 2002 which is like late because like I I think people had them like 98 but it was like before the movies right and my birthday is in November so it was like a thing. Yeah, but when I read the book, I was like, "These movies suck." <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and actually, my mom, uh, she did. I one thing I do remember is when the Bridge Terabithia movie came oh. out, she told me, "You're not allowed to watch the movie until you read the book." So oh. that was my mom's whole philosophy. So I don't know if actually that is something that Spoiler came into play word. for. <laughs> I don't know if that's something that came into play for me because my mom did make me read the books before I watched any movie that had a
0: You want to know a funny movie story else. though? My sure. husband, his mom was very religious, did not yeah. let him, his school was so progressive. They had Harry Potter books as a reading assignment. He did yeah. not, he had to sit in the hall and do math instead. Mm-hmm. And then two years ago, his sister's high school did Harry Potter as a play and his mom allowed her to be in it wow and he's like <laughs> excuse me <laughs>
1: that's funny yeah it's um with the reading stuff I feel like I want to ask my mom more about the reading stuff um but yeah I I think that it, you know we were talking before about like sight words and stuff and like that I do know that that is an ish issue is like the for you. the learning <laughs> like, okay. the the learning how to read without the comprehension part, and and I know that it is an issue, um, from a GLP perspective as well. The only thing that I can say that I personally, and I don't know if it is like an attention thing or if it is like a you know hyperlexia like GLP type of thing, but I have always read faster than i can comprehend oh, so i yeah so yeah. i will well, read question, like
0: do you yeah. read a book cover to cover like do you force yourself to read every word or do you give yourself permission to kind of skip
1: if i skip i don't know what i just read so like if i'm actually reading a book like not an audiobook but like physically reading a book i will read and it's not because I'm skipping; it's because like I am reading the words, but uh, my my brain is doing something else, I guess, which is why I'm not sure if it is an attention thing or not. But I, but I've always had that. You know, I I remember being a child and having to go back and actively like, okay, I just read these three pages, but I do not know anything that happened in those three pages so I have to go back and like read the whole thing again no, you're
0: right it's an overlap yeah because I've talked to autistic ADHD dyslexic and gifted people and we all have that same experience so I love yeah to- just saying it's a neurodivergent experience but yeah. for me it's like it- it's also related to like sensory like like right now like I I know my kids are okay but I can do this but if I don't have that reassurance in my brain if I have that like the impulse that says uh-uh go check that yeah I can't pay attention
1: <laughs> right yeah yeah so it's hard to say I think there's like so many overlapping characteristics for any um like everyone's brain is kind of just like a a mix of different qualities and so like at I, I have a lot of characteristics that like, okay, I know I experienced this, but I don't know if it's coming from executive functioning or from sensory needs or from what. So yeah, it's hard I can't for
0: self-advocacy because you're like, I don't know what to ask for because I, don't I know, know what my brain needs 24 seven.
1: Yeah, that and, and it did get easier when I got my autism diagnosis because I, I had a little bit more language for it than I did before. But like even now, I, I'm i not open about being autistic at work. I haven't disclosed it to anybody at like HR or anything like that. So I don't have accommodations at work. So I think a problem that exists still with a lot of accommodation situations is that uh, to use like a personal example. So I had a 504 in high school. Um, for my misophonia, which if anyone listening doesn't know what a 504 is, it's kind of like an IEP, but only the accommodations portion. So I didn't have any like uh, additional special services. I just had accommodations. And and
0: I want to ask, so did your mom looked that up or did a teacher recommend it? How did that
1: come? So about? my mom is actually um in the field of education. So she's currently an elementary school principal, but oh, she's yay. always been a teacher. Um so she I I mean again very lucky I we already had knowledge of that existing. So um but I got it in my junior year of high school and so I had the accommodations to where I could get preferential seating and I could take my test in my test in a separate room. The problem is that you as the person who needs accommodation have to ask for it every single time the need for that accommodation comes up. It's not just like, okay, I get up and I walk to the other room to take my test. Like I have to remind the teacher Hey, I need to take my test in the other room. I, uh, you know, people, can I
0: ask what kind of, or is there a variety or was there one response that you got when you asked?
1: I never asked. So that, that's the problem that, that to me (laughs) was the problem is that, um, I was the type of student who like really never raised my hand in class. I was too nervous to talk and, uh, and I was also just like, you know, rule follower, people pleaser, like I said earlier in in the recording. To me, like the accommodations felt like I was breaking a rule and I didn't want to do it. And I also just like I didn't want to cause a stir. I didn't want for the attention to be on me. Um, I had one class where I used the accommodations, and it was just because that was the only teacher, that was one of two teachers. That showed up to my 504 meeting where we were talking about the accommodations, mm. and my other teacher. So that was my English teacher who I actually used the accommodations with, and then my theater teacher. Uh, I didn't really need accommodations in that class because we didn't sit at traditional desks. We didn't have tests. Like it was not. It, I didn't. It, it. It was not a class that was like distressing for me. Yeah. So anyway, um. And I think that that problem persists. So I just had an episode on with a disabled speech pathologist, Angie Evanich, who is incredible. And she's shared very similar experiences um, being um, in higher education and having to get accommodations. And it is very difficult to get accommodations just documented in general. And then it's also difficult, again, to actually... Have the accommodations because you have to tell every single one of your professors that you have these accommodations. And then you also have to remind them when you need to use the accommodation. And there are certain, like you described, stigmas against using accommodations because if we give it to one person, then we have to give it to everybody. If you're taking a test in a different room, are you going to cheat on the test? If you're taking extra time to take the test, are you cheating on the test? Like it is not accessible and then for me
0: and I'd argue if I could point out I think the root problem and idea of cheating is ignoring the fact of how ableist it is because most people who do cheat actually probably had a learning disability and needed mm-hmm. accommodations and were not given them
1: right I mean it, yeah it's everything is always way more complex than like you you know you either cheated or you didn't right but my Um, problem
0: is is like if you see a child that's cheating why wouldn't that prompt a meeting
1: I yeah yeah absolutely like the I I don't I I don't know I can't speak for every single person of course but like I don't think that most people cheat just because like they want to yeah like I and this is all I'll use you know it is much more Societally accepted and efficient to speak than it is to use AAC or like another form of communication. Even though I, as a speech pathologist, value every form of communication and promote every form of communication that I can and want everyone to have access to the communication modality that works for them, and some people are not going to be speaking in their lives, it is still like. If you can talk, that is more valued by society.
0: When I argue, that... I don't even think it's valued if I, not to be depressing, but I think it's easier to exclude people when they don't speak a Oh, way.
1: absolutely. 100%. And kind of in that same way, like when I took a test and I know all of the answers because I learned it that is easier and way more efficient than having to look at someone else's paper or like sneak a you know cheat sheet under my desk or something like that mm-hmm. like i don't think that most people are would cheat on a test because it, like they just want to it is easier to have it in your head And so my my point in saying that is like, yeah, it should be prompting some additional support rather than punishment, because why does that person feel like they need to cheat? What is what is making it difficult for them to have that information uh, to learn that information? Because what is a test? It's supposed to be showing what you've learned. Now I don't think that that's always true. I think that a lot of in a lot of cases tests are just like what did you memorize, <laughs> and like
0: no I agree and I would memorization say,
1: like, is not a is not a good tool for learning all the time either. So well, question: yeah. When
0: did you feel the most confident in your learning in school? Was it during a standardized test or like a classroom no. test or during like a project?
1: No, I mean uh, it's it's so hard to say. I've all I always feel like I've had a strength with writing. So I think I always felt most confident when I could like write an essay and I, I just, I, I know that I'm good at writing. So I've always felt confident with writing. Yeah. Um, standardized tests are horrible yes. uh, because they make everybody feel like they're already in trouble when they walk in the room. And so standardized tests are a horrible experience. Nobody goes into a standardized test thinking that they're going to do well.
0: Um, can and I offer a controversial view? So sure. When I, so my first experience of a standardized test, um, I remember it was like the CRCT. Um, and we weren't prepared or we weren't explained about what it meant. They were just kind of told us like, hey, it doesn't matter if you get good or bad, but it does affect the funding. And for me, just like you were talking about earlier, like rule follower, like I'm not just mm-hmm. a rule follower. I see it as a game that I can win. And for me, trying my best isn't like, oh, let me do my best. So like my mommy loves me. Like my mom did not care about education because she had a terrible education. She just wanted me to do my best. And for me, my giftedness and my perfectionism comes from like an internal want to see how good I can be. And so it's funny to look at my scores today because I was off the charts But these schools did not understand what intelligence was. I was a high achieving student, not because of what they were teaching me. It was because of my gifted ability and they didn't know how to handle it. And my problem with standardized tests and using it for funding is because you are unknowingly prioritizing your gifted students as the guaranteed breadwinner for that school. And that's why these yeah. schools look for gifted education students. If you market them and say, oh, neurodivergent kids are really intelligent, they're going to look for neurodivergent kids as a guaranteed way to get that funding. And I, I have like an episode coming out talking about my education, my gifted education, because when I was in gifted classrooms in the beginning, it didn't feel like enrichment. It didn't feel like a reward for m- my intelligence And I know a lot of other people with gifted education, like if they didn't have a pullout program, they were just given extra work and it felt like a punishment. I was the opposite and it felt like a reward for getting that funding for the school. So we were free to do more stuff that we didn't like or stuff that we wanted to, but it didn't hurt our GPA or our grades if we didn't do well in that gifted class. So what did it program me or, you know, condition me to do when I went to a standardized test, I knew I was going to pass. I did not care about that test. I look forward to the food. I look forward to finishing as fast as I could and then taking a nap because that's yeah. the only time I didn't get punished for sleeping in school.
1: Right. That that's a good point too. Um, yeah. And I did usually finish way too fast. And actually the people who finished too quickly in my schooling were reprimanded because we I remember
0: that. I remember that because admin would get mad because they'd say, well, the parents would be like, my kid came home and said they slept all day. What did they do? So then admin was like, uh, -uh, we got to put in built-in breaks. You got to put the AC down. So the kids will stay awake and it's all to mitigate this, society idea of what does it look like to be a good learner they didn't actually care of what the kids were learning
1: yeah and also like what they always told us was like you finished too fast you weren't thinking through your answer so you're probably not going to pass like they it was as you know take your time so that you know because
0: there was honestly if you look back in history the way we do scantron testing now or like you know even like I would say like iReady or map testing. You get those results pretty immediately. Right. But why is it so removed from the teacher? And it's interesting to me how we've made an industry of testing itself. And Mm -hmm. then we wonder why it's hard to remove it. And it's like because we have propped it up.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, oh man, you know what? You probably should have my mom on your <laughs> podcast because she would go off about this. So maybe I should link y'all up because yeah, and she, needs she to write would a probably
0: too, because like she has, like, oh, insight.
1: she knows that she yes. needs to write a book. <laughs> That's like, she told me a few years ago that that would be like an interesting career shift for her is to like write a book and then do like in services about the book, like, and so I keep tell telling her, her like, you
0: need to, to do that, it. yes, <laughs> but also tell her, like, you know what, she could do. You don't have to name names, you don't have to actually be logical. You could write a thriller of just like <laughs> being an admin and that dread yeah. of that, pressure yeah, and expectation. Well, and my other um side note is. It was interesting to me because I did get that recommendation from a lot of other parents and even organizations that like, maybe my daughter just needs a 504. Yeah. It's interesting because the school doesn't get as much funding from a 504 as they do for an IEP. No. Yeah. Also a 504 is not legally a contract. So the way the school pitched an IEP for me was saying, oh, but the IEP is legally binding. It's going to help you what they really were trying to sell me on was this gives us more money. It helps mm-hmm. your child less, but it gives us money. And there's guarantees that if we don't follow the IEP, even though we're a part of that process every step of the way, but the 504, wouldn't you give you that same security? Right. And what I tell parents now is to always ask, what is the graduation rate difference for a child with an IEP and without an IOP? Because they're, The answer is surprising. Yeah. And the true answer is we were told that the graduation rate without an IEP, 91%. That's what they advertise. Most students actually in our school district do have an IEP and the graduation rate is actually 61 to
1: 62%. Wow.
0: And it's like, if you go into a school meeting and you told a parent, hey, listen, so in general education, you know, we can't do everything or not the best, but your kid has a graduation rate. Of ninety one percent, but oh, if we do this IEP and they're legally, you know, we we're required to help them, but it's only sixty around sixty percent that they're gonna graduate. What do you think a parent is gonna choose? Right,
1: right, yeah. I mean, I again, not controversial to say, but like the society as a whole, but certainly our education system, and it's like, and it, it, I don't know if there's anybody that we can like place blame on because teachers are not actually supported to accommodate the kids that have accommodations like when when the accommodations aren't happening like yeah there's probably teachers who are like I just don't want to do it but more than likely it comes from they just literally don't receive the support like the classroom sizes are too big the you don't they don't get paid enough. Like it, it's it, they don't sorry. No, oh, no. sorry. I know. Um, they don't get the like continuing education or the training to even know how to implement some of the accommodations
0: or you know what neurodiversity looks like. Um it, I it's think just you're right. And that is the question is why are we still expecting someone to admit fault when they're not going to uh-huh. and why aren't we listening to the parents and the teachers and the students right. and the therapists that are right. noticing this issue and have solutions because they're doing it like right moms like me we are doing it why aren't you asking us to help you fix a system that we do want to support right
1: right and it's like you know a lot of teachers Unless they go to school to be like a special education teacher, they don't go to school to learn how to work with IEPs, you know. So then when they have a student that shows up with an IEP, they were not prepared to take that on. And that's not their fault. But it's again,
0: that should have been written into the ADA.
1: Oh, it should have. It absolutely should have. And this is like part of my... Uh, argument as a person is like disability education should be part of human everybody's education. Everybody's education. Yeah, yeah. It it should not be. Yeah, it should not be something that is like seen as extra. Yeah, it. Cause it, cause everybody's gonna encounter either their own disability or the disability of others that just has to be accommodated just has to like wait, there's no way around
0: it well and that's my yeah. my thing too is like I I honestly think in parenting and especially parenting right communities we're wasting time and it's a distraction to be like well you know this is how I feel you know like oh let's ban books or let's don't ban books I'm like listen people are illiterate people can't read and write why are you wasting time on this same thing yeah. I'm like I would say like there's a lot of tribalism in neurodiversity of like, oh, I want to be called this. I want to call be that. Like, listen, y'all, those priorities are off base. (laughs) Like we need disability rights. We need to, and I'm not even saying like that we have to like organize and make like this whole big thing because we do have a good foundation of what is working, but we should have never dropped the ball and stopped that or stopped to think that, this will work forever. And that's why, I I mean, obviously we're in America, we're USA, but our constitution has the ability to add articles. Just our laws have the ability. And so I feel like we need to definitely have more neurodivergent people become lawyers and legal assistants and learn about civics and learn about, you know, community. Like, cause honestly, like I'm a mom, I can do my podcast. I can rant and rave about this all day, but do I have time or the money or funds to go knock on Congress's door and, you know, tell them to do this stuff? No, but there are yeah. other people that can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. And at, at, at the very least, the society having an interest in learning about the experiences of disabled people would, even if we don't have, like, 50% neurodivergent lawyers or whatever. Yeah. If it was built into our education system from the ground up and if society as a whole really did care about supporting and learning about the experiences of disabled and neurodivergent people, then it would be it it would be better. We wouldn't have to all have time for it because everybody would Be informed about it. And so you want
0: to know an interesting fact. So obviously I consider myself a secular humanist and I love humanism, but what people don't realize is a lot of the social justice movements we have today, which are based in feminism, women's rights, even ACLU that helps, you know, Jewish communities fight for their rights. The NWACP fight for African-American rights. They were all funded and supported originally by humanist movements. And usually mm. it's New York City. Yeah. And I don't think people talk about that. Like, I'm, I'm really mad at the movie Oppenheimer. And I, I'm probably not <laughs> going to see it because Oppenheimer went to a school in New York that is known for secular humanism. And mm-hmm. it was founded by a Jewish man that was also a German immigrant. And he rejected his Jewish ideology, not because he didn't believe in it but because he didn't feel like he could help people just by being a rabbi. So he mm-hmm. started this humanist church to help everybody. And that inspired the St. Louis um, society, which that's how we got gifted education. That's how we got kindergarten in public schools. That's how we mostly got public schools and yeah. people who talk about vouchers. It's interesting to me because if you look in the history there used to be a time in the 1800s right after the civil war where the catholic church did want to do private school and have a voucher system and society collectively pushed back and said no because they saw it was just a way for the church to gain get money um and they knew it was like a lack of accountability for where that money would go it's not necessarily that they said like no to private school or no to specialization but they saw the value of public education and funding that money into one bucket and then having the system show you how to audit that money and make sure it goes to the right places. And I think it's not radical to say that we should be working together better as a society in 2023 when we have collective social justice goals. Now, do you have to believe the same thing as your neighbor no diversity is good. Like it's okay to have different thoughts, but it's not okay to use those thoughts to exclude. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, I don't know
0: if I have much more to add to that. (laughs) Well, I think we are coming up to the close, but I just want to thank you so much for having me on as a guest on your podcast and then being a guest for me on my podcast. But Is there anything, because I know I'm so excited to see your business grow and your new Mm -hmm. handle name change. Yeah. Is there anything that you would like to tell the listeners? I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to put the show notes. I'm going to put your Instagram. I'm going to put your podcast information. Great. But is there anything else you'd like to let listeners know?
1: Yeah. Well, so I'll, I will say like, I do have my podcast. It's called Neurotwist. It is. Um, a neurodiversity based podcast. I talk a lot about speech pathology, but I also have guests on from many different walks of life, which I'm very excited about. Um, I am starting my private practice, um, speech pathology, private practice right now. It's called heart to heart speech and language therapy. Um, It's a practice that's based around just like um, connection and love and relationship. Um, And that's the foundation for my entire philosophy about speech pathology in general, um, as well as being neurodiversity affirming and what you can look for um, from that very soon is a lot of uh, coaching and consulting based services. So um, very soon I'm going to be offering a, a post autism diagnosis consultation service for families of newly diagnosed autistic children who, um, so, and that service is going to be, um, really whatever it needs to be for that family. But my vision is that families will have a place to come to talk to a professional who is not based in the medical model, who, um, they can come to me to learn about autism outside of the deficit model um and we can talk about your child's unique strengths and needs so that you can you know it's not a therapy service but it's a time for us to kind of come together and figure out okay where do we go from here um so do we need cuz you know the medical model is always going to push you towards aba i i'm here to say what can we look at based on your actual child and family not like the cookie cutter model um Heart to heart, heart, yes. (laughs) Um, And I also am going to be offering um, professional consultations as well. So if anybody is a professional listening to this who either wants to learn more about being neurodiversity affirming or just wants someone to bounce ideas off of um, in their clinical practice, that's another service that I'm going to be offering as well. Um, I'm still working on my website, but those things are going to be on my website. So again, it's heart to heart. It, when the website launches, it's going to be heart to heart sl.net. So that's all
0: that. <laughs> so I want to thank Emily so much for joining me today on this podcast episode. And if you've liked what you've heard, please follow Emily on Instagram and on Facebook. At Heart to Heart SL. Check out her new website because we want to support her brand new business. Also, listen to her podcast at NeuroTwist on all major podcast platforms. And I want to thank my listeners so much for listening to this journey, especially when you're listening to the world of neurodiversity affirming practices with practitioners and with me as a parent within this context of neurodiversity and being a neurodivergent individual. But please remember, by embracing affirming practices, we are not just parenting or helping parents with their own children. We're helping people and individuals blossom into their own authentic selves. Also remember everyone is unique. The strategies that you've heard here today or the experiences that you've heard here today are our individual experiences. They happen to us. The strategies might work for one child. They might differ from another child, but please be willing to adapt and evolve your approach as you learn more about neurodiversity affirming practices, your child or your client or your student's individual needs and strengths. Because being a neuroaffirming individual is an ongoing journey of learning, empathy, and growth. So if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, like, share, and leave us a review. But until next time, keep on nurturing those neuroaffirming connections. Check out new episodes bi-weekly on Wednesdays. This is your host, the neuroaffirming parent, signing off.